Hello everyone, welcome back to Gamers Gambit with your hosts, Al and Wayne. So, how is it going today, Wayne? It is wonderful. It is always wonderful. Spring has finally sprung, and it feels nice, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it's been a very, very nice 70 degree day out. All the seagulls were circling my building, um, dive bombing people as they went. It's all been very good. Don't leave any food out, for they will get it. At least we're past the point where we had the, uh, remember last year, last April, when we had like the 20, 30 some inches in mid-April? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I remember back when I was younger, I think it was like either 88 or 89, we did have a snowstorm on May 10th. So, knock on wood, hopefully that doesn't happen again, but... (laughs) Hey, didn't we just miss, didn't we just miss like the other week, uh, you know, like... 12, 12 to 16 inches that I went through Chicago. So it's like, we just missed that one. So Yeah, because I remember hearing something about how there was supposed to be snow, but I never heard anything saying how much. But yeah, that missed us. So that that's always good. But on to today's show. So I think for most of our stories today, actually going to be very uplifting because... You know, we've had so many episodes we've done where we've had at least one story with some bozo claiming that video games have negative effects. But today we're actually going to have some stories about how video games have actually been shown to have some positive effects. So let's start with a game for your cell phone called Sequest Hero. Now, have you had a Sea Hero Quest, something like that? But have you had a chance to check out this game or after I sent you the link? Uh, no. Don't usually do this cell phone games, but I'm willing to hear about this one. Well, don't feel bad. I didn't check it out or download it either. But No. But the reason I wanted to do this story is because scientists believe that this video game can help predict your risk of Alzheimer's disease. So now, to be to be fair, Al, how much do we really want to know if we have Alzheimer's disease? Do we just want to go, ooh, gibbering madness? <laughs> well, you never know. I mean, uh, forewarned is forearmed, and that might early detection might help you, uh, you know, later on. But it could be this game, Sea Hero Quest, was actually des- it was intentionally designed as a scientific study, and. They, the makers of the game, you know, made that known right up front. So there was no, nothing underhanded or secretive about it. So the purpose of the game is to monitor how gamers with and without a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's navigate a virtual world using their thumbs to move a boat through a series of mazes. So what they would do is, I guess they took some participants that were at higher risk for Alzheimer's and people who were at lower risk, and they compared their results. So they found that players with a higher genetic risk for Alzheimer's tended to take less efficient routes to reach the checkpoints in the game. What's more, they found out that movement patterns were identified among players in the genetic risk pool who had not yet displayed any other memory problems. Now again, since neither one of us is a neurologist, uh, the... The way I understand it is they're they're trying to show how because I guess one of the things with Alzheimer's it I know it affects your memory but it can also affect your like spatial or spatial aware spatial awareness and capabilities as well mm-hmm. and so the you know how well you navigate this maze may actually show you know whether you have the potential to have Alzheimer's or not. Now, one of the things that I found most incredible about this story is that due to the amount of people playing the game, they got the equivalent of five hours of lab work for every two minutes of gameplay. Now, that's kind of incredible because that's usually, you're usually having to, now, did the did the article by chance, I'm just skimming over it, but did it actually say, how much just by this research being done they may have saved in 
possibly getting volunteers and setting up actual lab time because five hours of lab time, I don't know how much that would take, but to be able to have this game, you know what I mean? And have it count for like five hours of lab time for two minutes of gameplay. That is actually one efficient and two, you know, kind of cost effective to be honest. Yeah. Cost effective. Yeah. The article from, as far as I recall, it didn't say how much money it saved as well as time. But like I said, I just found that incredible that, you know, and they said it was more just because of the sheer number of people. I think they were saying like that over 4 million people playing the game. So, yeah, all that work, you know, just playing a little cell phone game possibly saved thousands of dollars. Well, maybe probably not thousands, possibly millions of dollars. In re- well, I don't know. It could be either. I'm not a, like I said, I'm not a neurologist, so I don't know how much neurological research costs, but I imagine it's fairly pricey. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that it would save all that time and money, not bad for a, a cell phone game, huh? Well, and just, just think of the outcome if, I mean, I'm pretty sure this would not happen, but think, think if the doctor could just say, hey, play this game for me at, like, you know, 30 something you know what i mean and then you know you could have early detection of hey you're at an increased risk for alzheimer's and there you are and i'm not sure if there's things you can do to avoid it or things that they could do to start you know treatment but it's hard i think if i remember right to actually catch you know early stages of alzheimer's in the first place so um to have something as simple as a game be able to tell you this you know, and it got me thinking, I wonder with the success that they're reporting with this game, I wonder if this will lead other medical professionals to consider, can we use simple cell phone games like this as a way to collect data and as a way to quickly and efficiently res- you know, research you know, different medical, not well, not necessarily just medical conditions, but, you know, mental conditions. Because, I mean, part of playing video games, yeah, there is the physical part, but at least in my opinion, uh, you know, there is a certain, you know, mental part of it as well. Because, yeah, you have to have the physical reactions, but you also have to have those thinking abilities. So, who knows? Maybe someday in the future we will hear about more studies of people using video games as a way to study the effect, you know, the brain and possibly predict diseases that could help save lives. So for all the people out there who think that video games can only do bad things and then they're the cause of the uh, world, all the world's problems, suck on that. Exactly. Well, we've got another one of those uplifting stories, so yet another suck on this for the people who uh, think video games are all negative. According to a study that was put on by uh, James Paul Gee from UW-Madison, video games can help with language skills. Now, the uh, researcher suggests that role-playing games such as Elder Scrolls or World of Warcraft offer an ideal learning space for what he calls at-risk learners. In theory, there's just enough challenge, just enough support, just enough room for players to be themselves, and possibly more important, students have just enough ownership of the, the learning process. And one of the reasons he thinks that this could be beneficial is that, well, when you're doing these online games, you're less self-conscious. I, I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Yeah, there's a little bit of uh, with a with a with an MMO or or you know even some games, uh, it, t- it takes a bit of a bit of a, I guess personal space away. I, I don't know. There's a like an MMO. MMO. You've got a little bit of a, uh, an. Uh, I'm an Anonymity. Um, yeah. Uh, so it well with any role playing game or whatnot, it kind of takes you out of the shoes of who you 
bar and put you into something else. So you, I don't know how to exactly to explain it, but you know, it kind of makes sense there. Yeah, and personally, given a choice, I would rather do, you know, my role playing around a table with people. But I understand that for some people it might not be practical because, well, anyone out there who's played Dungeons and Dragons or any role playing games camp in a campaign, you know, you've always had the problem of getting a time that everyone in your group can get together to game. And back in 2005, I was at a game fest down in Milwaukee, and I I was listening to a session that Gary Gygax was putting on where he was doing like a Q&A and he was talking about the state of the role-playing game industry. And one of the things Gygax mentioned is that, you know, he acknowledged that the there are certain advantages to games like World of Warcraft. Because, of course, when you're, if you want to play a game of Dungeons and Dragons, you have to find a time for everyone to get together. You have to arrange a place. If you're meeting at someone's house, you know, the person hosting may have to clean up the house a little bit. And then, of course, there's also the time constraints where, you know, maybe you want a game from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., but maybe someone has to go at 7 because they have to go to work the next day or, or whatever. And, of course, with a game like World of Warcraft, all you do is you just log on and, you know, get online. And, you know, there's going to be people there that you can play with. And you can pretty much game for as long as you want. None of this, you know, I have to stop at 9 p.m. because that's when my kid goes to bed or anything like that. So, I, I mean, I can certainly see how you can be you know, less self-conscious when you're behind the computer screen. And that maybe brings out certain traits in you that you wouldn't... It brings out certain aspects of your personality that you might not necessarily do at the gaming table. But another one of the aspects of the study, they were saying that another reason that online role-playing games can be beneficial for, you know, for uh, learning is because they require you to communicate in real time. So I think I may have asked this before, but have you ever done much uh, online role-playing? Because of my schedule, I do fairly bit of a uh, bit of it for, I used to do something called mushing. I play World of Warcraft and Final Fantasy 14. So I, I do a bit of it only because I, I work weekends, and that's normally when all the groups I've ever been in are able to roleplay because everybody works during the week. Now that I'm working weekends, I no longer can have tabletop roleplaying time because everybody's working. So that's cool because at least until you get to the point – at least until you are – you don't have to work weekends anymore, it at least allows you to fill that, that void in your life even if it's not – you know, gathering around a table with other people and rolling dice. The the one thing that's interesting about about the article, um, which it's about language skills, right? Yes, that's correct. And I don't know if you haven't have seen or not seen, but there's been a large push to get programming and coding into gaming, like playing games to teach people how to code. And looking at this, it's kind of the same thing, because when you play a game that's based on coding, right, and it's actually another language as well, like Minecraft and whatnot, which is a semi-online game, not technically, but yeah, and a lot of aspects in there, you know, have some coding. And I was talking about, um, you know, Minecraft and French, and I was like, you know, that kind of makes somewhat sense, you know, having to deal with things in real time, but nobody has to see you if you mess up on your language <laughs> skills. You know, not nobody really knows who you are, and nobody's going to give you a hard time about it. I was thinking, you know, okay, well, how – I don't know. Yeah, and – See, and we did the, I think, was it was it last episode or the episode before? We did have that story about the uh, the guy out in California who, as I recall, as part of his Eagle Scout project, was trying to find ways to help teachers use Minecraft as a learning tool. And yeah. 
Another thing, I'm actually, we were going to record this last night, but it is cool that we are recording this now because my son was saying that as part of a homework assignment for tomorrow, he has to brush up on his Minecraft, or not Minecraft, his Mario Kart, because I guess they're going to be, uh, they're going to be using that in a class of his. So actually, let me see if he's around, so maybe I can get him to comment, so just a moment. Yeah, no problem. So we have my son Alan on, and he's going to tell us how he is going to be using, how his school is using Mario Kart Wii as an educational tool. Hi. So my hey. school is using Mario Kart Wii for an educational tool by using it to do solve math problems by using mean, median, range, mode. So pretty much we're like getting like time trial scores, like for example, like running like just Luigi Circuit, for example, and seeing like, okay, so are we, so see how like, what is like the, from like four runs of it, like which one's got the best score? Okay. Yeah, there isn't much else to it as it's mostly just, okay, play some Mario Kart and then we're going to analyze the results. Okay. Okay, and I'm back. So, yeah, that I I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. Then he told me about that because I don't know about you, but when I was back when I was in school, we hardly did anything with computers. If we were lucky, yeah, yeah it's like if we were lucky, we got Math Blaster. That was about it. And and I understand or that Oregon Trail and tr time to go on dysentery. Yes, time to die of dysentery on the dysentery Oregon Trail. Patrol. So. So, like I said, hopefully... It is interesting, though, um, because you have seen, like, MatPat's videos, um, which we talked about, in the, and, you know, things like that. How do they come up with how much distance could be traveled in Mario Kart? How how do they measure that? What are the actual things that they can do? How And how deep would they have go into that? And I do like MatPat's videos, and some of it, like... And it, he does use math and science, like... One of the one of his episodes, he was talking about the Wario waft and how much force it would require for him to for Wario to generate a large enough fart for him to propel himself into the air. Mm -hmm. And we break it down like, OK, uh, you know, judging by, you know, an official source, maybe they list Wario's height as this and his weight as this. And then they looking at the screen. This is how high he gets when he does the Wario waft. And okay, so here's then he analyzes something else with like gas pressure. And remember how a while ago we were talking about how there was a petition to introduce Shaggy into Mortal Kombat. Yep. He also did another one where he was talking about Ultra Instinct Shaggy and whether he would be as powerful as Goku and uh, what his power rank would be or something. But yeah, go watch Matt Pat's videos and. I do like how he does try to take that scientific type approach to some of his subjects. Now, for the for the for the going back to the article in Final Fantasy XIV, they actually do have, I believe, a, a system in which you're supposed to be able to talk to. And I haven't looked into it very much, but there are Japanese players on Final Fantasy XIV, right? So there is supposed to be a way for you to kind of you know, communicate with the Japanese players. Now, I don't know how you would go about it, but if you had a school who could get a hold of, like, a uh, Japanese keyboard going through language skills class, you might be able to go and say, hey, everybody go to these desks, play Final Fantasy, and you could actually talk to people from Japan while you're playing. That's interesting. So, like I said, hopefully we'll hear more stories in the future about educators realizing the potential that video games have as a teaching tool. So moving on to our next story, U.S. Senator proposes a bill to ban loot boxes. Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from Missouri, said Wednesday that he'd introduce legislation banning, quote, manipulative video game features aimed at children, end quote. He, it's called the Protecting Children from Abusive Games Act, which would prohibit loot boxes and pay-to-win microtransactions. Now, I understand that the intentions are probably good behind the 
behind this bill because we've talked about loot boxes and the whole play to win and uh, microtransaction based gaming industry. But honestly, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about uh, this bill. What are your opinions? You probably can, you and our listeners can probably already guess what I think about this bill. Go, go, go. There's a YouTuber, Jim Sterling, who has been saying for years that if you don't clean up your crap, that the government will do it for you eventually. He's been saying if you don't regulate yourself, the government will regulate it for you. And in my opinion, this is one of the times that regulations from the government are a good thing. They won't temper themselves. They know exactly what they're doing with loot boxes and microtransactions that aren't necessarily of real value. And they and they've been told that. You know, I mean, look at the look at overseas with. Um, I forgot what the country is. Uh, Belgium, I think that's the country that banned loot boxes. But again, people, you know, have been kind of saying, you know, you got to be careful because kids are kids are could get addicted. People with, uh, you know, gambling issues could be addicted to these things. Game industries did not do anything with it when the when people aren't willing to police themselves. That's when the government regulations need to come in to protect people. And it's just one of those things that you had your chance. And don't get wrong, I don't think this will go anywhere. The lobbyists will pretty much, you know, shun the non-believers. But, you know what I mean? It, it's still, is this the, this is the second bill now for loot boxes. And I'm, and after the first one came out from that guy from Hawaii, they still didn't do, take any actions to regulate themselves or police themselves. I mean, look at our article from last, I believe it's the last session that we had for the podcast, Apple trying to limit microtransaction and game time um, apps that, that might be installed. I mean, is it getting worse? Is it getting better? You tell me. And is this something that's needed? Yeah. I'm just saying, if the games industry can't police themselves, I mean, the government's going to come in and do it for you. And in this case, it's the second time it's happened. It's like, and they're still not taking any steps to, to try to clean it and clean the system up. Yeah, and this is where I have the mixed feelings. I mean, I totally agree with you. I remember what you were saying before about how if you don't, clean up the government is going to need to step in now i think that i think there needs to be something to i mean i i guess the way i see it is i could agree with a bill that would police or regulate these transactions to some extent i can agree with that it's just the part i don't feel comfortable with is the outright ban because whether you like it or not that is a moneymaker for these game industries. And in a perfect world, and we know how perfect the world is today, but we're not going there. But in a perfect world, the gamers would, the game companies would hopefully use the revenue from these microtransactions to fund better games, even if they're not just going to be cell phone games or games that do have these loot boxes and, you know, microtransactions. So that's why I, I'm, no. I'm against an outright ban. It's not... And, and, I'm, and I have to disagree with that. They're not going towards games. Any, any, it's pure profit in the coffers. It's CEOs, CFOs, C-level, C-list employees who are getting millions of dollars in their own funds, not paying out their, their people, getting bonuses or whatnot. It's not going towards development. I, I, I swear to God, if you could probably see it, the amount that actually goes back into development from these things and not just either, you know. Now, the good thing is if it goes towards the stockholders, which is one thing, 
but how much of it is actually going to your C-list you know, C C-list employees versus the actual games developers or in you know, into re, re you know, development for new things. I I don't for a moment believe any of this money is going for redevelopment. This is all pure profit going into the covers of the C-list employees. If we're lucky because it's raising the value of the stocks, it's going into the shareholders, which might keep them out the back. But at the same time, this is feeding the machine that keeps loot boxes and microtransactions of this nature going because they have to always make more profit. It always has to be more. So I, I, I have to disagree with that. I don't think for a minute any of this is going into, you know, making new games. Most of this profit is going directly into somebody's pocket. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think one area where we can both agree on, when you're talking about a AAA title like Star Wars Battlefront 2, where you have to pay, you know, you're paying 50, 60 bucks for the game and then have to, and then get, and then actually spend money to get loot boxes to get important items. Yeah, there's no excuse for that crap. That's something that the game can, you know, that the gaming industry can do without. But I guess sometimes I think more along the lines of your mobile games that are free to play. So that's where I can, I see how it can be a money maker for good or ill. Now, I mean, I could. So I guess here's a way. A question for you then. Would you rather see a game where maybe you do have to pay a couple of bucks to download it, but they take away the emphasis of microtransactions? I mean, would you think something like that would be better, or do you do you like? Always. Okay. So you're not a fan of the model of okay, free to play, but you get extra goodies if you uh, you know if you pay money. Never been a fan of it, only because, like I said, I want it. I game for an experience. I don't. I don't game for the ever. I don't game for the ever loop. You okay, know what I mean. Yeah. I. I. You know, like you could say, Wayne, you pay, play World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy fourteen. Isn't that just a grind for gear and a, and a loop for gear? And I'm like, well, for me, I play it because of the story and to have fun with the group of people. The loot and stuff like that. Yeah, it's nice, but it's not the the main thing. That's like, you know, looter shooters or whatnot, like Destiny including things like the eververse okay totally not needed and they kind of ruined the game because of it you know it's it's again it's this thing where we have set you know slowly become accustomed to free to play games thinking that this is now the norm where i don't even know how to explain it at that point it's like you know there's games that used to have no end that were just mindless time you know, time taker uppers like Tetris or maybe like Frogger. I don't think there's an end to that or some of those other games. And those were not, not free to play. Now, am I against DLC? No, I I think DLC and things that enhance a game that can be okay. As long as it's not the horse armor from like, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, no, the free to play system, because in the end, it's just a time waster, and it's still a game, but you take those resources that you you used that. Could you have made an actual real game or just have that? You know, it's just one of those things. You know, Wayne, when you mention games like Tetris and Frogger, that actually makes me feel a bit nostalgic. And there's one game company... I don't know about you, but I remember them very fondly from my childhood, Konami. They recently announced or recently released the the uh, Konami arcade collection, but there's two new collections that are coming soon. Now, the first one, it, by the time this episode drops, it'll be out. Uh, the estimated due date is May 16th, which, and we're recording this on May 14th. And that's the Castlevania Anniversary Collection. And I think next month they're going to be releasing the Contra Anniversary Collection. Now, Contra was never one of my favorite series. I liked the first one for the NES because 
let's face it, any kid who grew up in the 80s, they played Contra for the NES, right? Mm-hmm. And I would have to imagine so. And it's just one of those games that's fun to mess around with, especially if you've got a friend with you. But Castlevania has always been one of those series that's been very near and dear to my heart. And the Castlevania Anniversary Collection is going to have Castlevania 1, 2, and 3 from the NES, Super Castlevania 4 for the Super Nintendo. It's also going to have Castlevania Bloodlines, both of the Castlevania Adventure games for the Game Boy, and as a special treat, Kid Dracula, which is a game that, well, before emulators, was only available in Japan. So what are your thoughts on these collections? Do you think these things that you're looking forward to, can you do without, are these things that you're excited for? I Hey, I, I'm always for these old collections. I think it's a good way to, I mean, you've got pretty much, you know, along with the um, new collection they made with Symphony of the Night and um, Rondo Rondo of Blood Blood that was just released, you know what I mean? You've pretty much got the core of Castlevania in two games. Am I good at Castlevania? No, I suck at Castlevania. (laughs) Um, But I think this is like one of those things that this is why I like to see these old classics put on there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are they, you know, I think there's a lot of value in, in this one, especially because like I said, that's one, two, three, four, eight games, five, six, seven or eight games. Eight games. Yeah. So eight games for probably about $40, right? Yeah. And I mean, I'm, As much as I like this collection, and don't get me wrong, I'm glad they're bringing it out because it gives the younger generation a chance to play some of the games that I enjoyed a lot when I was a kid. Now, the reason I'm probably not going to go out and get it, though, I still have Castlevania 1 through 4 on my, my Wii U. Kid Dracula, I'm not really that interested in playing. Bloodlines, I've played it. It's a decent game, but it didn't really like knock my socks off and wasn't really much into the Castlevania adventure games for the Game Boy. But still, like I said, I'm glad they're doing this because it does give the younger generation a a chance to enjoy some of the games that I always enjoyed playing. And I I guess for me, one of the things that's always been one of Castlevania's strong suits has always been the music. I don't think I've ever played a Castlevania game that had a bad soundtrack. Now, some of them have been kind of average. Like, as I recall, uh, the Castlevania Adventure games, the soundtracks weren't exceptional, but they weren't bad especially for Game Boy. Uh, Bloodlines, from what I remember of that, it actually had a pretty good soundtrack. And then Castlevania Castlevania 4 and Castlevania 3, definitely two of my favorite soundtracks from that those particular eras. Yeah, I do have to agree. I love the... I love especially... Symph- I mean, this isn't part of it, but Symphony in the Night... I, one of uh, one of the things I loved out of uh, Castlevania Super Drac- uh, Super Castlevania was the rooms where you would, uh, you know, swing from chain to chain, and the the room would spin around you. Oh yeah, the and mode seven. One of the first, yeah, the mode seven stuff, which was like really a novelty now if you think about it but it was just like oh my god, the actual levels kind of changing around me here. Yeah, and Castlevania four was. That was probably one of the best games in the series because I like how they just did so much innovation in that game because the you didn't have to press up in the attack button to use your sub weapons. It had its own button, which meant you could also oh, and, uh, and oh go ahead and this one couldn't you um couldn't you swing your chain and just have it out and swing it in any direction yep. as well just like you know, go in a circle? Well, yeah, you would hold the button. If you held the attack button down, your ch- the whip went limp, and then you could swing it around, mm-hmm. and 
it wasn't really useful for attacking enemies most of the time, but it was good for defending against a t uh, ranged attacks. Uh, also, you could move while kneeling, and then also what was cool is, yeah, you could you could whip in any of the eight directions. So, yeah, in addition to being, and as you mentioned before, you could use your whip to swing over things, and there were a few stages where, yeah, you had to whip like a, uh, like there was one stage, it was in the same area where you're talking about there's this tunnel you're going through, and the, you know, the blocks are dropping out, and the, it looks like you're in a spinning tunnel. Uh, I believe also in that section, there's another stage where there is a, there's like a, again, the room starts rotating in a different direction, and you have to uh, whip and hold on to this, this hook so that, and you have to wait there until it gets to the, you know, the room is safe for you to land again. So that I remember was an interesting stage. Uh, one of my favorite ones, there's this ballroom section where these, there's these giant swinging chandeliers you have to jump across. And then the, you know, as you're going through this ballroom-like stage, there's these ghost dancers. So yeah, Castlevania 4 and Castlevania 3, personally, I think they still hold up. Even if graphically they are dated, they're still both are very fun games. Yeah. Now, what is your opinion on the Contra collection? Um, because the one thing I was wondering is, because not so much with Castlevania, I don't think, but with Contra, weren't there actual arcade 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 ports that were different than the actual? home release of them yes um that's the one, one thing i was thinking i would have liked to see and i don't know if that is part of it but i would have liked to see you know only for comparison view you know the actual arcade port next to like the original nes yeah because which i think is better than the arcade one i'm not sure if that's true but yeah because there are differences between the home and the console versions other than graphics I think that's what they're doing. I mean, I'm not sure if they released the the Contra arcade games on the Classics compilation, but that's one of the things I liked about the SNK compilation disc is like some of the games, like, for example, the Akari Warriors ones, they give you both the home version and the arcade version. So I thought that was cool, and I'm sure they're probably going to do that with the the Contra collection. So this moves us to our next story. Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night. The release date is, is June 18th. So I have a feeling that you're uh, you're uh, counting down the days till the 18th, huh? Oh, God, yes. I kickstarted this so long ago, and I'm just <laughs> waiting for my copy to get here. So are you, are, you, so are you getting a physical copy or a downloaded copy? Both. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you sound very I've goody. Got... Oh God, yes! I've I've been waiting for this. This was just a, a, a technical, you know, spiritual sequel, because you know the the whole Konami's gone through some issues by you know kind of wanting to only be a p pachinko machine in the creator, uh, and they said that you know 2D Castlevanias or whatnot would not sell. Well, Igarashi um, says, "Hold my know, beer and watch this." Hold my beer and watch this. And I forget how much the uh, $5.5 million just in crowdfunding donations um, just to make this game. And it's been through, so don't get me wrong, like any Kickstarter stuff, it's been through some drama in itself. Um, you know, I think there's uh, uh, the box boss, which you were supposed to uh, be able to either push or jump on just like you pretty much got killed by it or got stuck in the box. Um, but I will tell you, I have been looking forward to this because, yeah, it's, it seems like it's going to be a very interesting concept and story. And to see an actual sequel to kind of, you know, Symphony of the Night, I'm like, <laughs> squee! <laughs> so which version are you getting? Uh, PS4. PS4. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure which which my downloaded copy is going to be because the physical copy is going to be the PS4 version. Yeah, because the, I mean, I'm planning on getting it 
because it looks like a really fun game, and I really enjoyed the Metvania or Castleroid uh, style of gameplay. I guess for me, I have to, I'm going to have to look and see which. Okay, is there going to be any difference between the Switch version and the the Xbox One version? So that's going to be my deciding factor. Now, there's a reason why I put this story where I did in the show here. Now, we just talked about the Castlevania Anniversary Collection. Coming out not that much before Bloodstained, not too long before Bloodstained is. Do you think Konami is trying to capitalize on people's nostalgia for Castlevania by releasing this collection when they are? To be honest with you, I don't not necessarily, um, and I'll and I'll just say why. I mean, there is of, of course copy, you know, counting on the nostalgia. However, they just released the really, or they just put out the release date on this. I think this has been in Konami's corner for a while for their collections. Now, did they look at? Now, I might agree with that looking at the success of the kickstarter and i think that everybody who kickstarted it plus even fans of castlevania itself may still you know the hype is real for this game you know whether it turns out to be good or bad i i think it's real so konami might have seen that and just said well maybe let's put this out and see you know can we actually can we actually make castlevanias and does anybody care or it could just be because, you know, remasters and reprints are kind of going through right now. So, I personally think they are trying to play on people's nostalgia. Because one of the things, I mean, for fans of the Castlevania series, a lot of them aren't really happy with the direction Konami's taken and how they're not going to develop any more Castlevania games. So at least not in the foreseeable future. So personally, I think they are releasing it because they, I hope that, I think that the reason they're releasing it when they are is because they are hoping to capitalize on people's nostalgia that, hey, we've got this spiritual successor to Symphony of the Night, the one Castlevania game that almost everyone loves. Uh, it's, well, how about you check out where that series got some of its inspiration from? So that's just my opinion. And again, I'm not saying that as a way to try to, you know, tell people not to go out and buy the, the Castlevania anniversary collection. Please don't think I am. I, I mean, like I said, I'm probably not going to get it just because the games on there that I'm most interested in, I already have. So there's no point in me going out to, you know, to, to purchase those again. But I do, I do like that that they are doing this because it does. Even if they, I think they are trying to capitalize on the nostalgia factor, and that's because I think those older games they are still worth playing even in today's world of 3D graphics. And I can't disagree with that. So, our next story before we get to the opinion section, and this is going to be another one of those feel-good stories. According to Professor Bruce Homer of the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, video games can help teens make better choices. He studied whether video games could specifically be designed to spark executive functioning, the con cognitive skills that help us avoid impulsive behavior, according to a CUNY media release. He studied adolescent hot executive function or EF, or critical thought processes that arise in emotional situations and therefore require greater self-regulation. Subjects played two games, one that was designed to trigger an emotional response and one that was in emotionally neutral. And the study did come to the conclusion that he was predicting that, yeah, playing that game did trigger that response and it did help them make better decisions. Now, from what I read in the article, it didn't really touch on exactly what game they were playing, but I do I do like the conclusion here that video games can help people make better choices. So what are your thoughts on this story? Well, it it's kind of when you're thinking about it, right? 
kind of, I again, I'm having trouble with words, but we knew this, right? Mm-hmm. You want to learn to time your jumps so you don't fall into the pit, right? You want to learn to do all this stuff in a game, match the gameplay to get the highest score to be able to do things. Now, each time it's a choice, right? Whether you are more reactionary or you learn. Because uh, if you're just reactionary doing stuff, you may not you may not notice that that boss has a specific pattern. You may not notice that I, if I if I jump too if I don't time my jumps correctly, I'm going to just die. That would be just a reactionary. I'm not paying attention. I'm not. I'm not learning from this. I mean, I, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but now making better choices. That's that's where where you're saying what game did they play? How did they do? That's the kind of information I think would be would have been nice to have in the article to show exactly where that was coming from. But. From what I know about video games, because it's a learning thing, and I mean, there are, you know, just like reflex shooters and reflex games that are out there, but more, most games are a pattern recognition, and, you know what I mean, want you to learn from your choices and, and do things to do better in gameplay. Yeah, and especially when you consider games that are more strategic, that, yeah, it does force you to make better decisions. And I do agree with you. It would have been nice if they did explain what games they played that what was the game that triggered an emotional response and what was the one that was emotionally neutral. You know, were these well-known games that people would would be familiar with or were they just generic games that they had someone programmed for the purpose of this study? Yeah, and that and and also what were the situations in which you got those responses? That's true. So there's a that study showing that video games can help teens make better choices. This brings us to our opinion section. Maybe there's some parents out there that should play more video games and see if it helps them make better decisions. Now, there's this the reason I wanted to discuss this topic. There was a video I caught not too long ago on YouTube. It was about another commentator talking about this trend that, I mean, I don't think it's ever really going to go away, but every now and then you hear a story about a parent who records themselves destroying their child's video game system and their games. And sometimes in some versions of the, the videos out there, the parent makes the kid do it, like, you know, smash their their PlayStation with a hammer or, you know, run over a bunch of CD games, you know, disc games with a lawnmower. Why? What the f*** is the point of these videos other than, uh, I mean, seriously, I really wonder what the heck the point is because it's like, I mean, did you, first of all, do these parents not realize how much money they're wasting in an effort to try to teach their kid a lesson? Now, I there have been times in the past where my son misbehaved. And again, just for context, usually with the uh, these videos, the reason that the parent is destroying their kid's video games is because usually they're not doing chores around the house or you know, they, they're doing poorly in school. And there have been times in the few times in the past where my wife and I disciplined our son because again, he wasn't doing his homework or he did something else that he, you know, he shouldn't have, but I didn't take all our video game systems and run over them with my car or anything like that. We did the same thing. We took the video games away for a week until he straightened up. What what do you what makes a parent want to say, oh, you you failed a few tests in school and you're not doing some chores around the house. What should I do? Hmm, I know. I'll take your four hundred dollar Xbox and I'll run over it in my damn car. What are these people thinking? Okay, well the first thing is I'm imagining none of these none of these parents are poor. Uh, that's the first thing. 
The second thing is is none of them are gamers. None of them are like you and me, who I don't have children, but if I had a kid, I'm certainly not going to go, you know, I'm going to throw my own damn PS4 into the lawnmower or you know, to run over it with a car. Um, sorry, but, you know, I'll take it away and he can't use it, you know, or, he, or she. But I, I gonna, I'm going to play on that, too. So they're definitely not gamers. They, they've got money, so they can, they can afford to probably trash it, I would have to think. The other thing that I think we're we're not seeing at the other time that I don't know if YouTubers are are that have commented and whatnot on this is there is also the fact that are the parents understanding that these videos may go viral, get huge amount of clicks, and generate revenue. See, that's why I'm wondering if maybe because some of these videos have millions of views. And I'm sure there's probably people that watch it with a sense of smug satisfaction, like, ha, look at that whiny little teenager, you know, crying while his his PlayStation gets run over by a, a lawnmower. Yeah, I'm sure there's people that are in it for that kind of stuff, but I also wonder if it would almost, if it could potentially backfire and attract unwanted attention. I mean, what if that parent who, you know, smashes johnny's xbox with a hammer because you know he failed a math test what if a few years from now maybe he gets divorced and the judge is trying to or maybe he gets in some other legal trouble and they're trying to they're trying to determine if he's fit to be able to parent his kid and then someone oh here's an old uh youtube video where this guy is smashing his kid's video game with a with a hammer while he cries and, and screams in the background is something oh uh, yeah, you know is this the yeah don't don't get don't get me wrong al none of this is good when you're in a custody battle none, none of this is going to show up as as oh look this guy is like a maniac he look as he's beating the crap out of this ps4 kids be, be getting tra traumatized in the background and not only that he's putting it up on the internet he shouldn't be putting his kid's reaction to this on the internet like this and traumatizing the kid. Yeah, no, that's not going to go anywhere as far as I know. Now, if there's any, you know, family law people out there, I don't think this is going to go anywhere well in, in, in any custody battle. So it would have ramifications outside of that, definitely. My question is how many of these are real? That's true. That's another thing that I always think about is, okay, Maybe they are smashing a real Xbox, but for all we know, it's, you know, one that's not working anymore. Because, let's face it, it's, just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. Well, my thing is, okay, my kid's going to be traumatized for 24 hours, but what happens when they tell him, yeah, hey, we just made twenty to $30,000 off this YouTube video? See, with the way that YouTube has changed, though, I don't even think a, a million, I don't know if a million clicks would even get you that amount of money. But I guess the other problem I see with this, I don't think it's setting a good example for your child. But I, I no, wonder if I wonder if some of these parents don't realize that once you put something on the internet, it's pretty much out there. Uh, even if you put it on a YouTube channel and delete it, and then delete it, if it had that many views, chances are someone downloaded it to show it on another site or use it a part, as part of another video. And since we live in an age where cyberbullying is a real thing, how do we know in a couple years, you know, maybe that kid, you know, the people at that kid's school, you know, someone might decide that they're going to share this video with all the, everyone he knows. And all of a sudden everyone's making fun of this kid. It's like, ha ha ha, your dad smashed your, your switch with a, with a hammer and and cut off cut up your Xbox with a chainsaw and you were in the background crying like a little baby and next thing you know the kid shoots himself and commits suicide because he's getting bullied and harassed so much so i i don't think you're going to find many people that think that this is truly great even though these videos get millions of clicks but i guess the thing that i'm concerned about yeah Okay, on the petty end, yes, you do have to consider the money. I mean, these people probably are wealthy if they can just say, I'm just going to trash, you know, a $400 video game console and hundreds of dollars worth of video games just to prove a point. I can always get another one. 
But I guess I think these parents, they're, they're not thinking of the possible long-term effects of this action. And not only that, I think it makes you look like a real douchebag if you're going to do that to your kid. Well, not, not only that, but are you really, I mean, don't get me wrong, but it's also the thing is, what kind of lesson are you really teaching them? Because traumatizing someone kind of builds resentment in that learning environment. You know what I mean? It's like you don't want to, and how much of a lesson are they going to take from it versus how much resentment is going to grow, you know what I mean, from just being traumatized by because you can't imagine that any of those kids or anything are not a little traumatized by just the violence of just, you know, smashing the hell out of something. I mean, some of those videos that you see, the kid's not necessarily expecting it at all. And I guess here's the other thing, the other problem I have with it, and I just thought about this. Okay, your kid's doing poorly in school. Maybe he's misbehaving. Smashing his video game system is maybe addressing the symptom, but it's not the cause. So explain, I hope, I wish some of these parents would explain, okay, how do you think that destroying your kid's video games is going to make him, is going to correct the problem? I mean, if he, it's a problem with him not doing well in school, well, again, he's probably going to develop more resentment. And if it's a behavioral situation, well, by taking a chainsaw to your kid's Nintendo, you're certainly not setting a very good example and you're not showing him, a, you're not giving him positive behavior or a positive example to follow, but that's just my opinion. And it's still, if you take it away for a little bit, discuss with, a, you know, and a lot of it's just like trying to figure out and understanding why is my kid not succeeding? Sometimes it's just taking a moment and going, do we have to only have certain times with the, because just because your kid plays video games doesn't mean that's the reason why he's not succeeding. He, he could be having trouble. He could be being bullied at school. He could maybe be a little bit behind and maybe he needs a tutor. He or she, again, sorry. But at the same time, unless you ask those questions, until you try to figure it out, just being angry about it and destroying things, you know, I mean, sometimes maybe that'll work, but, you know, more often than not, you know, if you don't get to the root cause of it, I mean, if you, if these, and I'm pretty sure maybe sometimes the, you know, the PS4, the Xbox is the reason, it's the root cause. I can't imagine that because I know too many people who've had systems who've exceeded in school. It's like, so... Getting to the root cause is always going to be a better option. Here's an idea for these parents that think it's a good idea to record themselves destroying their kid's property and then posting it on the internet. Try being a f***ing parent instead of being a goddamn bully. May, that'll probably get you a lot further than you know, creating a viral video of you throwing your kid's you know, Xbox One into a fire pit and watching it burn so well uh any final thoughts on today's episode and some of the stories we've talked about uh no i think i you know again i think we're going in a good direction with some of these positive stories coming out for video games less that you know I play video games, therefore I worship Satan. Um, you, know, you know what I mean? That, that's always a better thing. No, Wayne, I think. playing D&D &D is what's supposed to lead you into worshiping Satan. Remember, playing video games is going to turn you into the next uh, mass shooter. Oh, well, that's right. Okay, <laughs> I have to remember that. Get my get my things mixed up. But, but you know what I mean. I think we're going in a good direction if only we can do this and – if we can get more government support, in my opinion, to at least take care of the gambling mechanics and the whatchamacallit that, you know, we know the government or not the government, but the companies are using to kind of make predatory microtransactions and loot boxes. If we can kind of tone that down uh, to your point, you know what I mean? You know, once you open the door though, where does it stop? Um, 
but at the same time, I think we're going in a good direction, and I think that's where I'd like to leave us. You know what I mean? That is, you're right. Can we keep the Can we get keep the good times going? Yep, that's. Uh, I think that's a good place to end this episode. So, with that said, like to thank you all for tuning in, and until next time, keep on gaming. Hey, this is Nick and Alex, and we're here to tell you a little bit more about Dungeon Junkies. Now, we're a podcast that's based in Austin, Texas, and we are hell-bent on making you laugh. Absolutely. We have some fantastic storytelling uh, with some badass characters and even better music, as well as a ton of jokes to make you laugh. So join Fenworth, Taryn, and Dr. Euphoria, and our sexy DM, Kenny, on a quest to save the world or destroy it. I guess whichever one comes first. <laughs> and you can also check out our Real Talk episodes where we get meta inside our campaign and really figure out the depths of our characters and also the story. So check us out on www.dungeonjunkies.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dungeon Junkies, because not all adventurers are meant to be heroes. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio. Studio.